I don't know if you observed the average age of your worship team this morning. Did you notice that? Except for Tim Hogue, who was happy to provide the experience in the group. When I came on Thursday night, he asked me if I could figure out which one of these pieces doesn't belong. But this is the face of Adventism in the worldwide church. Did you know the biggest demographic for our denomination is the young adult in this age group? I was hoping I would hear, amen. That means the denomination is in good hands, hands with energy, friends. I'm holding in my hands this morning a pair of field binoculars. This is actually a fine pair of field binoculars, very expensive, which is your first clue that I didn't buy them. I've told you more than once I'm rather cheap. This is a good pair of field binoculars made by Leupold and Stevens, my brother's company. My brother works out of this uh, corporation in Beaverton, Oregon. They happen to make the, the lenses and the sights on rifles. It's a very expensive pair of field glasses you can use to watch birds. I've taken them to the opera. I've used them on a safari in South Africa to see wild animals. When field glasses like this, when you hold them up close, it takes that which is far away and makes it present, right? It takes that which I would not otherwise see. When I'm holding these up, I can go all the way to the back row this morning. And any time during the sermon, by the way. And I can see exactly, I can see the expression on Carl and Nikki's face in the very back row. I can see they comb their hair, brush their teeth. Field glasses take that which is far away and make it up close. Usually only happens to you once or twice, maybe the first time you've gotten your binoculars, that you might put them up to your face the wrong direction. Have you ever done that? And that which was far away, which you were hoping to magnify, is, oh, so it's, it, it's, it's in Moreno Valley. Once in a while, that happens to us. We pick them up and we hold them the wrong way. Now, while I'm holding them the wrong way, one of you could come and look in the proper end of my field glasses, and what you would see is me, and plenty of me, enough of me to last you for a lifetime if you look through the wrong end of the field glasses. Sometimes you feel like the focus is on you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Now is the time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It's like having a pair of binoculars backwards right on you. Now is the time for judgment to begin. And it will begin with the household of God, the people of God, those of us, the faithful. That's where it will start. I don't know what happened between last week and now. And by the way, if you haven't heard last week's sermon, this is a two-part conversation. We've made extras. You can go online and listen. It's necessary, I think, to hear both of these together. What happened between last week and now is very curious because last week and, and the first three or four chapters of First Peter, nothing but encouragement for these Christians with their back up against the wall. Nothing but exhortations to do good and to remain faithful and to to stand strong in a world that's gone wrong. Nothing but more and more praise for them. And now today we hear 
Judgment has come on the household of God. Forget the encouragement. Forget the exhortations to to stand strong. Forget building them up now. It's like God looking backwards through binoculars on you. The judgments come right on you. And can you imagine if you're gathered in house churches there, living in the first century through all this persecution, can you imagine there you're gathered licking, literally licking your own wounds and mending your body and maybe a little frightful of the person sitting next to you, not so sure you'll even survive your own little worship service. Can you imagine you've come to be encouraged and lifted up and you read the judgment is coming and it's beginning with you, wounded oppressed, persecuted people. When they hear the word judgment, I wonder for them in the first century, if it's like us today when we hear judgment, we most often hear punishment. Punishment. Or something bad is going to happen to the people who deserve it. I wonder if they heard it that way too. Not every time when we read judgment in the Bible ought we think a dishing out of a punishment. Just like not every time you read the word law ought you interpret the Ten Commandments. The judgment of God is coming. And it's starting with the household of God. I wonder if that instilled fear in them like it sometimes does in us. Now, I mentioned that you ought to listen to last week's conversation. I said something like this about suffering last week, and I said it with a strong conviction. I said, based upon what my study of 1 Peter, what we've been reading together, I do not believe we can teach any longer a theology of suffering that says God sends us our suffering. That, in fact, we must always and ought to correct this immediately and teach a theology rather that says God is not responsible for suffering and sending it to the world. God does not send you a trial and then stand back to see how you're going to handle it. God is not sending out, dishing out divine appointments and assignments to see who, who can take and how much trouble they can take and will they stand and how will you respond. The suffering in the world does not come from the hand of God, I said. And a few of you said, just like that. And I am still employed this week. So I'm going to continue the thought. This is not a popular thought, by the way. Turn on your Adventist news networks. Open your Bible study quarterly. Some of you sent me quotes from the quarterlies we study out of. What I'm saying to you, I realize is not popular. And I realize it isn't the the, uh, leading voice of the day. And I'm just telling you, I've never felt more stronger about a conviction from the Bible rarely than I feel about this one. Suffering does not come from God. It's not a popular thing to say, and I, I, I speak with a little caution. Our youngest daughter, Elisa, said to me a few weeks ago when we were watching a televangelist, he was going, he was sweating, his fingers were out there in his Bible, and there was pounding, and there was screaming, and I was listening carefully, and she looked to me and said, Mother, if you ever... Even once, I will deny I'm your child. Please never get up to the pulpit and scream like that. If ever I felt like it, it is on this topic, friends, at Calamesa. 
I said last week the, that the suffering cannot come from God. Now, if we would, were to take that to be true, what we can say, moving through 1 Peter, looks a little bit like this. Rather than suffering coming from God, it is clear that a consequence of living in this world is that we suffer because we live in a sin-infested environment. Rather than the sin and the suffering coming from God directly to us, we find that when we are in the middle of suffering and trials, we have a God who is able to stand with us and move with us through them. We have a God who weeps when we weep. We have a God who moans when we moan. We have a God who shakes his fist when we shake our fist. We have a God who who tries to get the courage up for a happy spirit on the same day we try and get our courage up. What we have is a God who walks through our suffering with us. And what we also have when this walk happens is that we emerge the other side changed. Transformation does happen when we suffer. This is true. Transformation and sanctification, a a shaping and a molding and a refining of our character, it certainly does happen when we suffer. I could ask any number of you sitting here this morning, tell me about when you got your diagnosis. Tell me about your disease process. Tell me about the divorce. Tell me about when you lost that child. Most any of you would say to me, you don't come out the other side of suffering unchanged. Most of you would say, yes, it is in fact true that a trial and that suffering, I I never felt such an intimacy with God as as during that time. I, I never experienced the depth of God's compassion until that time. He's okay. He's not bugging me. Most of you, you could say when you've gone through your trial and out your suffering the other side, God changed me. I came out more loving. I came out a better person to live with. I came out more open and understanding and tolerant. Tolerant. Sure, suffering and trials change us. And God walks through that with us. God is somehow able to do something with our suffering. That is very different than saying God sends us our suffering. You understand the difference? And I'll still be employed next Sabbath. If we could be clear on that, that God doesn't send our trials, and God isn't watching to see how we're going to handle them, and if we're going to measure up, if we would agree on that, it says a lot. Most importantly, it makes a statement about who we think our God is, what this God is like, most importantly. And by the way, the months of October and November, I'm so excited for our new sermon conversation called Identity Theft. Who is your God? A conversation about what the real God looks like and how the real God behaves. If we could agree that the suffering doesn't come from the hand of God, dished out to us, we're saying a lot about who our God is. We're also saying something about this passage that we've just bumped up into in 1 Peter. What does it mean if God didn't send that suffering just to see how we were going to respond, didn't send that suffering just to refine our souls? What does it mean when we get to our text? It is time for judgment to begin and let it begin with the household of God. What is the nature of that judgment there? Verse 12 of 1 Peter 4. I'll just back up a few verses. This is how the conversation is going. After all, all the verses on suffering and standing firm while you do it. Dear friends, 
Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler, mischief maker, I suggested last week. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, now quoting Proverbs, the author says, If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We can say a couple of things about this judgment. It is not a judgment for God to see how we've handled the suffering. It is not a judgment that says, hmm, how did that one go while you were down there suffering? Were you able to sing my praises the whole time? Did a few bad words slip out? Let's judge how you did with your, you know, in the praise category. Did you give God the silent treatment? Were you frustrated and angry? Did you outright curse at God? It is not a judgment about how we have handled our sufferings is not. Nor is it a judgment for recalcitrant, wandering, sort of evil people. Often in the scriptures, we hear this same language. You read it in Ezekiel. You read it in Jeremiah. You read it in Malachi. It's time for judgment to come to the temple, to the household of God, right where God's people are gathered. But always in those locations, when you read it's time for judgment to come on God's people, it's because those people are recalcitrant and wandering and corrupt. In 1 Peter, we have read nothing of corrupt people. All we've read about are faithful ones who are suffering. This can't not be a judgment on people who are wandering and corrupt and far from God. I don't believe it's that kind of a judgment. I believe this judgment is less about you and I. In fact, this judgment has really very little to do with the binoculars focused in and much more to do with the binoculars focused out. I believe when we read, the judgment is common. It will start with the household of God. It is God's language about God's timeline. It's a way for God to mark history and a place in time. You could say it's apocalyptic, eschatological language also. Sort of like when we read in the Bible, the day of the Lord. That's God language for marking time. Sort of, I've had enough. I believe this judgment is God, sort of God's way of saying, and I have had enough. It's time for judgment to come. Look, I came into the world in the form of Jesus. I've gone to the cross. I've been to the grave. I've been resurrected. The author of First Peter says, ascended and seated on the right hand of God. It is time for judgment to come. I see all your suffering. I'm sick of it too. It is time for judgment to come. I see that you are weary. I am weary too. It is time for judgment to come. When we read in 1 Peter 4, it's time for judgment to come. Let it come to the house of God. It ought not make us frightened. It ought to make us delighted. It is God's expression, I have seen enough of your suffering too. I worry for my little denomination 
fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and I worry that we have entered an era where we have put the binoculars on us and inside of us, that when we read these texts, we are so sure they're about us and our internal purification, our internal process of sanctification. I worry that we've moved into a time in Adventist Christianity when we think getting everything perfectly right is how we ought to be now spending our time. First Peter has been so very clear several times. I'll just mention three. First Peter has said multiple times, stay in the, witness, the world and bear witness so that the glory of God can be revealed. Stay in the world and bear witness so that God's praises will be known. Stay in the world and bear witness. Do good, choose good instead of evil so that the goodness of God is apparent. It is so clear in 1 Peter that this is not about you and I getting things perfectly right. It's not about a judgment of our internal souls nearly as much as it is about staying in the world and making sure the world hears a witness for God. The binoculars are out in this passage. They're out on behalf of God. I worry as I listen to young Adventist Christians because it feels to me we're entering an era where ordering our internal holiness and our purity has become central conversation again in Adventist Christianity. And some of you lived a little longer. You thought, we've been here already. I hear among young adult Adventist Christians conversation I don't ever remember living through in academy and in college, a concern and a worry over being perfect, that when God comes, he finds us perfect without blemish, and that maybe if I work hard enough and I do this and I order myself internally perfectly, God might find me pleasing when God comes. Do you hear that language again in Adventist Christianity? You don't have to listen too far and wide to hear it. We have entered an era where this is what people are talking about again. As if, as if our entire focus ought to be getting in and out of the world as quick as possible so that we can preserve and protect and present ourselves wholly to God without evil having touched us. Getting in and out of the world quickly. Now, maybe I've told you when we moved to Loma Linda, my father told us, You go there and you study and you get in and out quick because living in Loma Linda is like one foot in hell and the other one coming. (laughs) Going to Southern California, that's like one foot's in hell and the other one's going to be there. You just get in and out quick, you kids. He he lived here. He went to dental school here. You got to get in and out quick. That's Southern California. Evil. Here we sit 25 years later. One foot in. Get in and out of the world quickly so that we can keep ourselves pure and holy so that we won't stumble. Find the purified locations along the way. I hope you'll allow me to talk this way as a committed Adventist Christian. Find Loma Linda and find the Loma Linda market and find your purified friends and find your academies and your churches and don't stray too far. Even move out to the country, build some houses in Yucaipa or Calamesa. You could get a little further away from Loma Linda. Went to Stater Brothers, bought groceries a couple weeks ago. The clerk said to me, not in Loma Linda, up in Grand Terrace. Oh, you're going to make haystacks, are you? 
I remember thinking, you're not supposed to know about this. This is our little secret. Get in and out. Buy your haystacks, your Fritos, your beans. Get in and out. Go home. The Sabbath is coming. I hope you'll allow me to just, to just live in this for a moment this morning. Because as I listen in the ch- church, I am worried that we have turned the binoculars inward again in Adventist Christianity. So I'm listening to tapes my mother sent me this summer, prompted by a phone call after camp meeting where she lives. I just want to know, honey, because I've been to some meetings, is it really a sin for me to eat cheese? Is that really a problem? Do I, do, what do you think? Does the Bible really teach that? And now I have my sweet, dedicated mother, Christian all of her life, who's raised four pretty terrific kids, if I have to tell you. Committed, faithful, not perfect. Committed and faithful. The trend of her life is headed that direction. And she could be 75 years old and be worried and wondering if this is a sin. And if she lays down tonight, if this is a problem. I worry for us in Adventist Christianity that we would turn the focus back inside. An internal, inward focus. Absorbing ourselves, occupying our time with managing our own sins so that when God comes, God finds us holy. Managing sins has always been God's business, by the way. Not ours. I'm concerned that we do this by an ethics of avoidance, getting in and out of the world as quickly as possible. But what I read in 1 Peter is not an ethics of avoidance. I read in 1 Peter, go into the world and stay there and bear witness. I read that there is more than avoiding evil, and there is plenty of it in the world. I read there's more than avoiding evil. A good, sanctified life is more than running from evil. It also includes running towards good. It also means embracing the good. Sanctified living means leaving the world a better place than I found it. Sanctified living means making a contribution in my world, not just avoiding The evil world I find myself in. Sanctified living is not necessarily fleeing from, but always includes fleeing towards and embracing something. So I read in 1 Peter a very clever way for God to transform and work on you and I. While we have the binoculars focused out in the world, because it's been very clear, stay in the world and bear witness and testify to God's goodness. While you're busy doing that, with the binoculars focused out, you better believe God will be transforming your character. While you're not even thinking about it. While you're not even necessarily wondering about how to order yourself internally, while we're busy, engaged, embracing our world, God indeed will smooth out the rough places. God will change us. God will transform us. We will come out more sanctified and holy. And it will happen because we've been in the world. Isn't that an amazing way for it to happen? The world, by the way, dangerous. Full of evil. J.R. Tolkien, I love the line he says, What can men do with such hate? First Peter says, run towards it. Embrace it. Stay in the world. And while you're there, don't be surprised if God does sanctify you, if God does transform you, if God does change you. 
I find it terribly encouraging when I read Let judgment begin, and let it begin with the household of God. I find that so encouraging to know my God is sick of this too. And it makes me, instead of fleeing for the mountain, it makes me want to run with God into the world and stand and bear witness as long as our lives shall last. That is the message of 1 Peter chapter 4. Stay in the world. Bear witness so that people will see about your good God. Now, I always love it when someone wiser than I, who's lived longer than I have, says something and says it so well, says it better than I was even thinking, but I was working on it and I was thinking about it, and and then here comes a wise person and just says it for you. Do you love it when that happens? You can just kind of jump on board. Yeah, that was, I was thinking that too. One time I preached a sermon I, I'll never forget, and a very wise person I admire came afterwards and said, did you know what, what you said Philip Yancey also says? He said, did you get that from Philip Yancey? I said, well, how do you know he didn't get it from me? <laughs> Don't you love it when a wise person thinks what you think? So it happened to me a week ago Thursday when I went on an assignment for our union and sat, very privileged to be in a group of nine pastors and and meet the general conference president. And I did tell him how to spell Calamesa. And I did invite him to come speak to you, by the way. He says in his own home church he's only been invited to speak twice in 12 years. And I interrupted the general conference president. I said, would you like to come to Calamesa? On behalf of you, I invited him. The taping is over. We've done what we were supposed to do for the project they were working on. Pastors in conversation discussing issues for challenging the local church. Nine pastors, the general conference president. Cameras are off. The best stuff happens. Cameras are off. And I heard a wise person and I heard what, I see, see, what seems to me to be a very gentle and confident, wise leader say. You see, in Adventist Christianity, friends, we could spend our time purifying ourselves. We could spend our times worrying about our sins. And we could spend our energy running around like chasing our tails, making sure when God comes, he finds a purified people. We could spend our energy that way. Wise person said, but then what would be our witness in the world? Where have we been in the world if we use all of our energy on the other? What will our mark have been in the world if we're going to be so anxious about our salvation and our sin problem? Do you like that? So go and be in the world, he told us. 
It's a good example of it if you go to the Adventist News Network. You can find this month our world leaders in the Middle East are moving their headquarters office. They've been out of their location in Lebanon for a while now. Civil war broke out in the 70s. Since 1984, they've been out of their office in in Beirut, Lebanon, because it's just too dangerous. But they decided as a group in 2005, in order for us to minister to the people of this region, in order for us to be effective, we really must go back in. If we stay here in Cyprus, removed on this little island, we risk what they say, geopolitical isolation. If we are going to minister to the people in the region, we got to be shoulder to shoulder with people in the region. So the month of July and August, they packed up their things in Cyprus. And if the reports are correct, this is the office in Beirut. You see the windows being cleaned and all the supplies have gone right back to a headquarters office in a very dangerous territory. Go into the world and stand there. Go into the world and stay there. Go into the world and bear testimony. They're doing it in Beirut, Lebanon. I heard a report from a little church in Seattle this spring when I was up there. I believe a little church called the Berean Church. Tiny church. Seattle's a big city. They, every Sabbath, when they have their church and they stay for potluck, when potluck's over, they, stand, they all go to the kitchen and they begin making uh, sack suppers, sack lunches, sandwiches and nuts and fruit and all of these things and, and little personal grooming kits and they pack up cardboard boxes. Not once a month, not twice a year. Every single Sabbath, friends. This is what they do. And when it gets close to sundown and they have their prayer time together and they sing together and they all move out of the church into the streets of Seattle, not just the streets, mind you, and not just the adults, they take their children too. Dark, rainy in Seattle. They go to the bridges and the overpasses to the bridge people. They know now where these people live, tucked up underneath the bridges all around the city, downtown mostly, Pike's Market spread out. And this little church takes their little packets into a dangerous world on dark, drippy, wet Saturday nights with their children in tow and says, here, I'd just like to bear witness to a good God in your world. That is the invitation of First Peter. It's time for judgment to come for sure. Sick of this place. Until that happens, stand in your world and bear witness to a good, good God. I used to be afraid when I was a little girl of a hymn my grandmother taught me. In times like these, you need a Savior. You know it, some of you. In times like these, be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. In times like these, you better be sure. And it used to scare me. Am I sure? Am I really sure? Is my anchor holding? Am I going to lose my place? Similar feeling you get sometimes when you read judgment in the Bible. Am I holding on tight enough? Now I study First Peter and I hear those words and I hear something completely different. It is such a dangerous world. Evil is alive. 
There is sin everywhere. You will only be able to stand in this world as you cling to this rock that is Jesus. He is the one. And while you're clinging to that rock in your dangerous world, God is going to do something amazing with you from the inside out. Sanctification, we call it. Transformation, we call it. So be very sure your anchor holds. And that is how you bear witness in the world. Would you sing with me that little chorus? Would you do that, just the verse in the chorus? In times like these, you need a Savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure. Be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus. This rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus. The only one. Be very sure. Be very sure. Your So may the Lord bless you and keep you while we're absent one from the other this week. May you hold to that rock which holds you up in a dangerous world ready to be transformed by your witness. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.